This show is part of the RetroZap.com podcast network. You will never find the more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. Hello, and welcome to Beltway Banthas, a Star Wars podcast live from the hive of scum and villainy in our very own galaxy, Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Stephen Kent. I'm your host, Swara Saleh. And today we are profiling another Star Wars politician, Sheev Palpatine. You may know him as the Galactic Emperor following earlier work as the Supreme Chancellor, Senator of Naboo, and heck, a knockout performance as the Senate itself. He is the Senate, y'all. Sheev Palpatine. Swara, are you ready to take a deep dive into the greatest political operator in the galaxy? Oh, yes. I love this character so much. He is basically my favorite villain of all time. And I just love him so much. And he is the Senate. So I'm very excited. Oh my gosh, yeah, no, I can't believe it's taken us this long to get around to doing a profile of Palpatine because he sort of comes up in every conversation about Star Wars politics, so you sort of feel like you you almost like cover his story and his accomplishments as we will be uh, coining them in this episode. Um, I mean, let's mean, let's let's be real, he's the inspiration for our show. Like, we do this for Uncle Palpy, solely for him. Yeah, we did this for him. Uh, you know, the only thing that I want is for Ian McDiarmid to record bumpers for the show. Oh uh, my god! That would I need be- to make. I need to make that a goal for our next Star Wars celebration. That would be magnificent, Swar. You're going to get it done. I believe in you. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> yes, the force is always strong with you. Uh, before Aww. we get into um, the best politician in the galaxy this week, Sheev Palpatine, the Emperor, the Supreme Chancellor. Uh, Just a little bit of news kind of going on in the real world this week that we just wanted to touch on before we get into the meat of it, the nitty gritty. Uh, Suara, have you seen these amazing amazing photos of Macron and Trump? Uh, This is Emmanuel Macron, the President of France, is here for his state visit, and Trump is basically just dragging him all over the White House and try. <laughs> it's, so, it's the bromance taken to the next level. So first of all, excusez-moi, c'est le président Macron. Second of all, um, yeah, I've seen a couple of these photos <laughs> and videos and uh, oh man, it's awkward. Uh, like, <laughs> I just gotta say though, I think that Macron of all like uh, world leaders is playing the game with Trump the smartest. He's He is. You know, like he the, Trump is someone who loves flattery and I'm sure like Macron, you know, I'm not just like stereotyping him as like a French politician, but in you a mean lot of ways. Ma- like- Macron? Macron. Oh, okay. Excusez-moi, c'est Macron. Get it right, you dumb American. <laughs> uh, it's like really, uh, yeah, he really knows how to flatter Trump. He definitely knows how to get on his good side. And as we've seen with this presidency, honestly, like this, this guy in our executive office like has no real um strongly held beliefs so often his advisors or external forces will be able to sway him with mere words of flattery or some like uh slight manipulation and i have a feeling that uh macron um 
in, especially in regards to Syria and international intervention there, I think he knows how to play the game really smartly with Trump. Yeah, um, his father that, 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 uh, is yeah, going to yeah, in the conflict yeah. in Syria even more if he gets his way. Yeah, that's that's yeah, kind of see, my only bone to pick with him. Uh, no, 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 you see. You see, this is the thing. Like, this makes me both like uh, appreciate him and worried about him. Yeah, I mean, he's he's a he's a slick operator, and I think uh, more than any other leader in the EU, he is suited best to deal with Trump, not Theresa May, not Angela Merkel. Um, he seems to know not only what is required um, to sort of assuage Trump and convince him of things, but also, um, you know, he's willing to do it. And I think that Theresa May and Angela Merkel are, are frankly not not that Macron is not esteemed, but like I, I think that there's too much pride almost on the side of the Germans and and the English um, to actually do what needs to be done to sort of drag Trump around. Um, I just, I, I mean, like the fawning, the fawning images of Trump and Macron are, are just something to behold. I don't think it's necessarily that they have so much pride, but rather they're so taken aback by him and his presidency and the way they go about doing things, especially with the contrast yeah, with President Obama. Yeah, yeah with that, those sort of formalities. But again, uh, I think Macron he is like a charmer. He knows how to really get on his good on Trump's good side. But I really do want to stress, like hearing this quote, I think it was this week or last. Yeah, it was this week of McClellan saying that um, he wanted both the U.S., U.K., and France to engage in nation building in Syria mm-hmm. or to create a new Syria. Guys, we went through this with Iraq basically a decade ago, and look at the mess that's still there today, and look at the complete another quagmire that's Syria today. We have to be cognizant about the fact that France was the one that actually uh, pushed for the intervention in Libya uh, that got rid of Gaddafi. And Libya is also in a mess right now. It's basically super close to being a failed state. Apparently, that was actually born out of a trade dispute that France had with Libya. So um, you know, we need to be very cautious. France France today, and, and particularly Macron, is a... a- rare sort of warmongering EU leader. I mean, like he really, he really is of a different stripe. Um, And I think we do have to be uh, cautious when dealing with him because I think, you know, when he talks about humanitarian missions in Syria and and nation building, um, you know, this doesn't really separate him much from the John Boltons of the world, uh, except, except in just smooth delivery. Absolutely. Yeah. So another thing kind of grabbing uh, my interest today is Kanye West. Kanye West is currently melting down the internet in sort of like a full overdose of his contrarian uh, brand and his just desire, I think, to intentionally irk and confuse people and drag them all over the place. Suara, have you been following any of this on Twitter? Because like the Macron and Trump photo shoot, it is also so delightful. Is it? Is it really delightful? Yes, is that the really, word we want to use about It really about is this? because everyone's I, just pulling their hair out. Everyone is pulling their hair out. And, and there's two yeah. things. So at one, everyone's pulling their hair out that right. Kanye West, you know, could dare say these things or, you know, that he could dare like wear a MAGA hat or something. And then you have Fox, the five, they're, they're kind of top rated show in the afternoon doing an entire hour just talking about this and really digging into like the free thinker that Kanye West is and how great he is. And all of a sudden they think his art, uh. all of a sudden they think his art is fantastic. And this is only because 
he for a moment appears to be on their side. And it's just so telling that like yeah. particularly Republicans, conservatives, they love when celebrities agree with them. And if they don't agree with them, they say celebrities should shut up. They shouldn't be talking about politics. Why yeah. did, Why are they even talking about the president? They're, they're singers. They're songwriters. And then if they <laughs> agree, then they're like, oh, this person's so wonderful. Especially for someone like Kanye West who has – I don't know who's so capricious, who is, who has annoyed me personally for the longest time. And it's honestly just like really sad to see like an artist of this caliber, um, in the R and B and rap community, uh, sort of go along with this president who has been enacting or has been trying to enact policies that are frankly discriminatory towards people of color. And actually this happened on Twitter. So you mentioned him wearing a MAGA hat, right? So once he put that on Twitter, that picture of him with the hat, he lost, Kanye West lost 9.2 million followers in less than 10 minutes. He started with 27.8 million and then he went down to 18.6 million, all because he put on that hat. But that speaks a lot. You know, that hat actually is, it sends a signal, honestly, to so many people in this country right now. And the fact that he put that on, yeah. So I personally think Kanye West is crazy. I've thought that about this of him for quite a while, to be honest. Um, but I just like kept my mouth shut because I don't really want to, you know, engage or dwell on things I don't like that much. But I guess like maybe I'm kind of glad that more people are waking up to – I mean, I don't want to say like, you know, if you're a conservative or Trump supporter, good for you. Like, I'm happy for you. But like uh, for those on the left side, uh, yeah, yeah, this is I'm glad this kind of I think it's it's just sort of a fun cultural moment uh, where everybody's sort of talking about like Kanye's brand and whether or not like are they being duped? Like, is all of this real? Right. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think there's a sense of whether or not this is actually him being genuine, but it also sparks a great conversation about what Mm -hmm. people are meant you know, meant to, meant to believe and have to believe. And, you know, chance, chance, the rapper just sounded off a couple of hours ago and he just, you know, put out, put out a tweet that black people don't have to be Democrats. And it's obvious what he's talking about there. Um, Just reminding people like Mm -hmm. there's, there's a way to critique Kanye West um, and, and some of the things that he does, but telling him, you know, what party he has to identify with, that's not open-minded. That's not liberal at all. Um, and that's just been a long-running debate uh, in, in this world. Well, all, all I'll say is that, like, when you look at the statistics of the African-American community or in general, like, minorities supporting Democrats, it's upwards of, like, 80 or 90%. And you just, like, Going deeper into that conversation, you understand where the disparity is. So there's something to think about there and how Kanye has perhaps lost a lot of sway with that. So it's not that he can't be, but rather for at least some, a good portion of the audience that he's going for, that he's always had, it doesn't send the best I wondered if it message. had something to do so, with class yeah. and income. Cause I think about, and I'm blanking, I'm blanking oh, on the yeah. name, um, but one of the guys from the Wu-Tang Clan, 50 Cent and Kanye all sort of like play footsie with Republicanism ever since they hit it big. And it's mm-hmm. always been about like taxes and money. <laughs> and I think, I mean, I think, I think that that's yeah, one of the, the big be. dividing lines is, uh, you know, just trying to, keep that cash they made. 
right now for our main show segment Emperor Palpatine, also known as Sheev. His achievement was dissolving the centuries old Republic and transforming it into the first galactic empire, annihilating the Jedi Order by political means and casting the galaxy into a nearly three-decade darkness. An impressive resume for somebody getting our politician profile this week on Beltway Banthas. We're going to talk about Palpatine's backstory, most of which is unknown aside from some past canon, um, his rapid political ascent, and also his legacy that was left over after his death. And we're also going to touch on what we can learn from his achievements. I say achievements with strong air quotes, but Suara, I know you're a huge fan of what Palpatine was able to do. Oh, yes. He's just, he just did it so well. Right up until Return of the Jedi, he had laid out almost everything so masterfully. Eh, a couple of Death Star hiccups here and there, but you know, like he was just like a guy <laughs> trying to bring order to the galaxy and, you know, the, those pesky rebels and that last Jedi got in the way when really he was just trying to bring order security to the galaxy you know yeah, he was just, he just wanted to order he just wanted everybody thing, to know? feel safe and secure and as you know you know the empire accomplished that they made everyone feel safe uh, and secure you know or 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 else <laughs> <laughs> or else exactly there's a just real like a marvel of, your of galactic getting politics blown but up, no i mean all. really like this uh this individual this sith lord achieved what the Sith have not been able to do at this time in Star Wars for centuries, destroy the Jedi Order. And I think really what Palpatine did was he destroyed the Jedi and the last vestige of, of hope in the galaxy with politics. That's that's what he did. I mean, his strategy was different than every every Sith that preceded him that we know of through canon. They had previously tried the way of the sword and of warfare, uh, espionage and sort of like assassinations, but they had never thought that they could just sort of eat it up from the inside. And that's what sort of made his strategy distinct. Um, so Suara, take us to the beginning. Where does Palpatine's story begin? Well, according to canon, he was born 84 years before the Battle of Yavin uh, on Naboo. As we see in The Phantom Menace, he's the senator from Naboo. So he was born to an esteemed family. And so there's this book, Darth Plagueis by James Lucino. I actually haven't read it yet. I really want to. It's no longer considered canon, at least in the new Disney era. I think because it has like too many details, like maybe that would conflict with new details. Uh, but, you know, it has a lot of really great stuff. And basically it says that while he was a child or at least a teenager, he was found by Darth Plagueis uh, to, and he was taken under his wing as his apprentice and I think Plagueis even helped him kill his family and killed his yeah, father. Yeah, he, so, he honed yeah. him and sort of trained him for a while uh, to murder his entire family via telekinesis. Mm. And it's so, so first of all, Darth Plagueis as a book is the only non-canon book I think is is essential reading um, just because you get so much of a picture of the galaxy's politics, uh, really like the nitty gritty, like down to lobbying, um, which Palpatine, Palpatine is involved extensively in. Um, and also some sort of the, the look of like what a young man's life um, in sort of the upper class of Naboo is like. And I, I think even though like that's thrown out in the canon, you still 
still kind of get a rough picture of of what would remain regardless. And I don't remember where I heard this, but I remember hearing that the Darth Plagueis book was like left in the gray area of canon somewhere. Um, I, I don't, I don't know how to attach that to a source at this point, but I think think there's a lot in Darth Plagueis that is worth still reading. Um, But, you know, he comes up in a, in a high, you know, upper crust family. Um, He has, he has brothers and sisters. His father is not the nicest guy, go figure. Um, And Darth Plagueis really sort of feeds on his natural uh, bloodlust that he's sort of uh, put down. And there's, there's sort of a sense from the beginning that Palpatine, was born this way. He wasn't molded into Sidious. He really was always going to be this perverse individual. Uh, but Plagueis really seized on it. Oh, now that's kind of like almost disappointing to hear. You know, like we all start out relatively neutral, or you know, it's our actions and our environments that shape us into the people we are. And it seems like Palpy, unfortunately, had a lot of like pretty crappy people around him manipulating him so you know i think that there might have been something good in there but it definitely got like completely and utterly destroyed by the time he was a politician so uh yeah so maybe it doesn't really matter that much maybe not but you know for for canon at this point all we really have is palpatine entering the scene in the phantom menace that's that's mm, pretty right. much the start of it which you know again kind of going back to the darth Plagueis book um you know if you sort of look at the old canon, Darth Plagueis, his master, is still alive at the time of the Phantom Menace. Um, right. When when he talks to Anakin in Episode Three about killing Darth Plagueis and, and you know kind of uh, you know taking that knowledge or whatever, um, uh, he he did that after the Phantom Menace, in between that and the Attack of the Clones, because Darth Plagueis is deeply involved in Republic politics. He's a financier. He's a money guy. Mm-hmm. Um, right. he's, a, he's a big, uh, you know, sort of campaign financier and and a, and a runner in the Senate, and he sort of guides Palpatine on his path to the chancellorship. He helped with the overthrowing of Valorum and making sure that the the you know the wheels were greased for that. And then only then after he achieved the chancellorship did Palpatine feel it was his time to strike and remove his master, thus becoming uh, the master himself. Now, he was always operating in this, in this version of the canon, a apprentice on the side that he was not supposed to have, that being Darth Maul. Um, he was not supposed to have Darth Maul and he was using him as an assassin um, and Plagueis was sort of catching on to it and becoming suspicious, but was not aware that he was being trained in the Sith arts. And that's sort of what Palpatine left aside. He was like, I have this trained killer, but he's not a formal Sith. And Darth Maul always deeply resented that. He hated that he was not mm. being treated like a Sith. And you see that come through in the Clone Wars, if uh, if you remember correctly. like yeah. That's what his beef was. And Clone Wars is still canon he was never given the full mantle of a Sith Lord and that really, really graded him. So I think there's a lot to the old canon here that they have not done away with that there's still reason to believe that that's still the timeline. Oh, yeah. I mean, when the Clone Wars was being made, uh, I think Darth Plagueis came out around sometime, like around there. And, uh, you know, they were definitely like playing off each other on what was canon back then. And you definitely see this also with Count Dooku uh, that – 
Palpatine had never really considered him a quote real apprentice or real heir to the Sith legacy and all of this honest like both um uh, Maul and Count Dooku to some uh, like Maul to some extent and Count Dooku they were just uh you know placeholders until he got his ultimate apprentice in Anakin yeah I mean that's that's sort of the the really tough thing to chew on in terms of the rule of two and it sort of seems to me that Darth Sidious Palpatine was very invested in the idea of blowing up the rule of two. I, I don't think that was something he was interested in. He seemed to resent it a great deal in the Darth Plagueis book and in that timeline. Uh, and he also seemed to take issues with it based on things that we know from the new canon and Star Wars Rebels and this idea of sort of like the Sith acolytes and all that stuff. Um, you know, and what did he also do? He also was he was training up and sort of like making other robotic and cult like apprentices to replace Vader and threaten Vader with. Um, there's 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 moment yeah there's moments yeah, in the comics that. where he's threatening Vader and sort of letting him know that like I have other people lined up if you do not work out. So you better like get your your emotions together, you know, in your robotic suit and, and do what you need to do. So something else from the old canon is the concept of the Sithati, which is basically the Sith version of the Chosen One. And um, there's some uh, speculation whether it's Darth Bane who started the Rule of Two, which means one master and one apprentice, one person to embody power and the other to crave it. And so you had the Rule of Two go over and over again for like a roughly a thousand years, at least in the old canon. And ultimately you get to Palpatine, who is so incredibly powerful and embodies so so much power that he feels above the rule of two he feels as though yo the rule of two like this thousand year tradition has been leading to me and i am the one to actually take over the galaxy and actually use uh my master and these apprentices as pawns so in a way the rule of two really developed into for palpatine into the rule of one uh, the rule of one in which like he was both you know, like master and apprentice, he embodied everything. Like he would be the one to decide the galaxy's fate and that the only person who would really be like always learning and always be the master would be him. Yeah. I mean, he's really a despot in that way. Like mm -hmm. you, you really sort of think of like, he has a huge dis disdain for traditionalism and, tra uh, yeah. you know, sort of the, the lower of the Sith and the Jedi. He hates it all. Like when he's mm. talking to Anakin about, you know, the dogmatic nature of the Jedi, he, he also is sort of subtweeting Sith uh, dogma <laughs> there too. Like, you know, totally. he, he doesn't believe in tradition like that. And, you know, I think that's a great point to sort of segue us over to democracy and how much he loves it. Um, <clears throat> because I know, love democracy. I love the Republic. This is, this is a guy who does not love democracy. <laughs> he does not love even the rule of two. He is all about the one autocracy. So I think it's time to talk about the politics uh, and the political career of Palpatine. And what we're going to call his achievements, which is unraveling the Republic and creating the Empire. But first, before we do that, a quick little fun exercise. Suara, uh, one or two things. Like, do you have a top favorite political machination by Palpatine in the film franchise? Something that sort of goes on on screen that people know that, like, you were like, oh my gosh, he is such a badass. I think I'll have to go to A New Hope when Governor Tarkin strides in and says, the Imperial Senate will no longer be of any concern to us. I've just received word that the Emperor has dissolved the Council permanently. 
the new republic the uh sorry they messed up the quote but anyway uh yeah so it's like ju- just that like dissolving the imperial senate just having kept around it's really like sort of a long-term thing that he did was to keep the senate that we see in the prequel trilogy around for something like 20 years and but and to let them think that they still had some sort of say in galactic affairs but really they were basically figureheads like uh figurehead representatives from each of the other constituent planets and it was only when the Death Star would actually be built that he could threaten to just blow you up if you didn't fall in line that he would continue to have this, these senators. But then he just decided, you know what? Now that this uh, uh, space station is operational, I'm just going to dissolve this and leave control to the regional governors. So, yeah, I think that was like a really sort of like long-term calculated move if that makes sense just to let them think that they were secure and that they still had a place and say in galactic affairs and then sort of sweep it out under the rug from them so yeah i think that was pretty great Mm -mm, epic uh i think i'm gonna go with installing anakin on the jedi council as a member you know talk about just brazen like he he knows that he can get away with this at this point the jedi are now so politicized and wrapped up in the affairs of the senate that they cannot deny uh the the chancellor a, a member being installed on their high council, which in, in many ways is a very sacred and important role in the Jedi Order, and they've lost control over it. Um, and we'll get a little bit uh, into the weeds on sort of how this is possible, mm-hmm. but it's really only after the Battle of Coruscant and amendments to the Security Act that Palpatine was able to sort of consolidate not just armed forces control, but also he was able to take away some authority from the high Jedi council. As it, as it pertains to dealing with the Republic. And that sort of paved the road off screen for him to install Anakin in that way in the movie and just make Mace Windu scowl. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Mace not a big fan. The thing about that move about making Anakin a council member is that the Jedi Council basically had no one to blame but themselves for... Uh, having Anakin be placed on the council or, you know, by Palpatine because they had already opened themselves up to so much sway and involved themselves in all these affairs that it sort of became a give and take, you know? It was like political in that. But because none of the Jedi are really politicians, they don't really know how to haggle, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. So we have to talk about uh, his most memeable moment, I am the Senate. Uh, This is sort of the pinnacle of, well, you know, I guess the pinnacle of his democratic career um, as Supreme Chancellor of uh, the Republic. The Jedi come in to depose him, remove him from office for his affiliation with the Sith and crimes against the Republic for orchestrating this entire war. He says, I am the Senate, but I think it's worth us talking about how did he become the Senate? Because he is accurate. He's not lying. He is not embellishing that he has become the sole uh, leader and legislator in a democratic body. He's he's not bluffing. Um, so kind of looking back, 
I think we should walk through how this happened. And this is an instructive lesson for all of us living uh, in democratic Western societies. Um, you know, this is meant to be a lesson to us from the maker, George Lucas. This is something that he intended for us to think about when we watch this movie um, or these series of movies. So, Suara, could you start us at the beginning? Like, where did the first sort of uh, shoe drop in terms of the, his consolidation of power? Well, I think it was really in Attack of the Clones when we had the esteemed represent oh, the esteemed oh. representative from Naboo uh, basically fall for a very easy trick by Masameda, that's a blue guy, and Palpatine, when they said, oh, which center would be brave enough to give me emergency powers? And like, it, I'm sure like he was also like, like, and, 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 and like, they literally say, if only Senator Amidala were here, and then it camera pans to the camera pans to Jar Jar. And it's like George thought he was being subtle or dramatic and like, oh, just, oh, God. And like, but basically then you get like next scene on Coruscant, like the representative from Naboo saying Misa propose Senate give emergency powers to the Supreme Chancellor. And then there's applause. So but there's something to be said about that applause, though, as the Republic was breaking up. As Palpatine was vocalizing his um, extreme uh, love uh, or his intense love of democracy and his devotion to keeping the Republic secure, uh, he garnered a lot of goodwill from the senators that remained in the Republic. So, you know, there is something to be said for the love there, but none of them have maybe it's more like this, like none of them were idiotic enough or uh like daring enough to actually give emergency powers or maybe they actually were smart and knew that, Hey, if we actually go forward with this, if one of us actually does this, there's a chance of him getting it. So maybe the applause isn't out of genuine affection. Maybe it's out of fear. You know, he was definitely capitalizing on that as well. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I, I think lawmakers just want to do things to do things so that they can show <laughs> their constituents like I cast a vote. I did a thing, yeah. even if it is not the right thing. Um, you know, kind of looking back, I meant to contextualize a little bit, you know, just the office of the chancellor for centuries is a, is a toothless role. Um, it is really a figurehead position and it was relatively weak due to reformations a thousand years before um, these movies take place during the Sith Wars. And the real power was always with the Senate. You know, that should sound familiar to all of you living in the United States of America. That that was, you know, the vision for us too. A, a body that really the power was vested in the Congress um, and the president, you know, has only accumulated power um, just rapidly in the last 100 years was really when the pickup happened. And for Star Wars, I mean, they have like this thousand year long history and it really just ramps up in the span of 10 years. It all just sort of evaporates. Uh, but, you know, you're right. I mean, he does all of this in the name of security and people are afraid. And I think if anything, the lesson of Star Wars 
for the main characters and for the societies in which they live is do not give in to fear. Fear is the enemy and it will just drive you towards darkness in one way or another. Um, and Palpatine is able to manufacture his rise to power by creating a climate of fear and, and an existential crisis in the separatist movement. Absolutely agreed. It's all driven by that insecurity and feeling like you need to give yourselves to a figurehead savior. And that's what he was able to do so brilliantly. He was able to manipulate these foolish senators into giving him that authority. And uh, yeah. I love Palpatine. I mean, there's, so there's this smart. belief, I think, among senators in the Republic that they can't possibly come to a decision on the creation of an army and a defense of the Republic if they have to do such things as vote, haggle, and actually talk to one another to come to a consensus. Now, granted, there are are thousands. I, I think thousands, uh, you know, is sort of like lowballing it when, in terms of people who are represented in the Galactic Senate, but. Uh, you know, that's the way that it's supposed to be done. And they should have always anticipated there was going to be a time where they needed to come together for national security. I say national as in galactic. And they just, they cave. Yeah. Well, as we've spoken about on the podcast before, it doesn't really seem like the galaxy at large was really anticipating some galactic wide threat. I don't think they had something like that since the Sith, but then comes the separatist crisis and, oh no, we don't actually have a standing army and we are so scattered and so varied across the galaxy that we can't really pull our resources to build one. And then it just so happens that there's a clone army that's like completely ready on Naboo or on Kamino. And they like, they just like decide to, oh, you know what? We're going to throw like these emergency powers at the chancellor because we are dealing with such an existential crisis that we, our institutions are absolutely not prepared for. I mean, it was a constitutional crisis. Let's be real. That's what it was. And, Palpatine took advantage of that. He saw this glaring weakness in there. He engineered the separatist crisis with Count Dooku and, you know, like it's a really brilliant mastermind, but for a really glaring flaw. Yeah. And I always wonder about, you know, you know, I, I've, I've kind of talked a little bit about the separatist movement as being sort of like this weird sort of idealistic, like libertarian ish movement. Um, and I always have wondered if the Republic had just not taken the bait and there was no fear of the separatists, they were like, oh, okay, people want to leave? Well, we'll buy, you know, have have fun assembling mm-hmm. and doing your own thing. But instead there was this climate of fear like, oh, it's going to lead to war. They're going to attack us. It's going to be a conflict. I just wonder like, is the natural outcome that the separatists always go to war with their public and, and try to attack them because Palpatine is moving both sides? Or were there enough people involved in the separatist movement that there wouldn't have been enough appetite for a war? Because, you know, we meet some of these people in the Clone Wars series and I, the High Council are sort of people who are very deeply involved with Newt Gunray and, by extension, Sidious. But you know, the bulk mm-hmm. of the separatist movement are just people who believe in the idea. So I feel like it's just not inevitable that there was always going to be a war if people just hadn't been so eager for one. Yeah, perhaps. I know. I feel like this is a question for another day. 
No, it's possible. So the next sort of shoe to drop in his big rise is during the course of the Clone Wars. So this is taking place after the attack of the clones. You get the Enhanced Security and Enforcement Act. There are mentions of this in the Clone Wars series. This is the expansion of the surveillance state. This is the Patriot Act for Star Wars. It amended the Constitution to transfer more powers and you're going to hear a lot of this in the next couple of minutes, transfer more powers from the Senate to Palpatine on matters of searches and seizures and control of the Galactic Security Bureau or the Republic Security Bureau. The Jedi were very skeptical of this. They obviously were not in favor, but like in most cases throughout the the course of the Clone Wars, they sort of sit on their hands because they don't want to be involved in politics. And so, of course, the Republic sort of runs away without them. And you do end up with a Republic uh, with deep surveillance, cameras on on every street. You have you know spies in the Republic. You have spies on the street ratting out their neighbors. Um, you know you have the propaganda machine mounting, which we've talked about on our episode Star Wars propaganda, um, where they are monitoring people's conversations, their thoughts, their feelings towards the separatist movement. Um, this is something that should sound familiar to all of us. Yeah, absolutely. Just uh, you know when we look back on. The period after 9-11 the, in the Iraq war, we were giving up so many liberties and freedoms in the name of security. And if you spoke out against this, you would be labeled treasonous or some sort of traitor. And like that's Granted, not formally, but like in the media, yeah, in, in the like media. Even, yeah, yeah, that's what I meant. Media. And yeah. you end up on lists, you know, you just yeah. end up on watch lists, like no fly lists and stuff like yeah. You know, the kinds of websites that you go to, uh, the kinds of affiliations you have by family. You can end up on just a simple thing like a no-fly list. Absolutely. And there's and there's no appeal for it, right? There's no appeal for being on things like these lists. And the same thing happens in Star Wars, where there is no due process for the way that surveillance and searches and seizures are going on. And of course, uh, the only person to speak up against this vocally, uh, you know, besides Padme, is Bail Organa. Because oh, Bail Organa Bail Organa is a gem. He's a national treasure. Um, so he's someone who is opposed to all of this, but he's not able to stop this tide. So one of the next big things to happen is the emergency amendment 121B. It's the reflex amendment. This allowed Palpatine to react to any battles that were being conducted by the Republic. Again, this is this is a Clone Wars episode. This is one of those reasons why you have to watch the Clone Wars. Not because you have to, but because it's just a lot of fun. There are lots of cheesy episodes in the middle, but man, some of the meat is really good. Um, and anyway, so Palpatine can react to battles that are going on with the Separatists without – Senate 8 at all. Um, Harmful language or harmless language sort of in this amendment um, basically gives Palpatine more control over the military. And it's one of those things where, Suar, you know all about this in the way that legislation is penned. The language is so benign. Basically, the way that they phrase this is that the the emergency amendment 121b is aimed at efficiency in government it's aimed at efficient government which is code for it's aimed for bypassing debate in congress because that would gum up the works and cause a national security crisis i'm sorry mm-hmm. i keep saying national when i mean galactic but you know, I know what you mean. They, they basically just do away with the idea that anything should be debated because in a in a time of na- security crisis 
there's no time for things like debate, which is why you sort of have a supreme chancellor in the first place. Everybody's afraid of actually having um, to go through the motions of democracy at this time. And honestly, and I know we mentioned this before, but the sheer scale of the galaxy and all of these various planets who have only really interacted with each other through the legislative session, which is primarily on economic matters, again, never had to think about uh, the prospect of a galactic war and essentially allying with each other militarily. So once they were in this crisis, they were so much more willing to give up these certain freedoms and liberties and this autonomy to the Supreme Chancellor, this one individual who can make these decisions quickly and efficiently. That's why you have it literally titled the Reflex Amendment, like whatever could happen, like Palpatine would have the power to address, but consolidating so much power in that one individual ultimately led to his rise as emperor. And I love him for it. He just knows how to man- yeah. well, manipulate know, this so he knows, well. He knows how the system is broken. He knows not only exactly. he knows not only what what people want naturally, which is the feeling mm-hmm. of safety and security. He also knows um, the way that money and politics works, and the way that he can gum up things there. And he also then knows that conflict will sort of just sort of ease him into more power. And he just does this masterfully, uh, motion after motion, which leads us to the Battle of Coruscant. You know, we're sort of thrown into Revenge of the Sith, not knowing why Palpatine was captured by Grievous and the Separatists. Um, it, it sort of was always unclear to me what sort of game was being played there. Did Sidious direct Grievous to abduct Palpatine with no connection that this was part of like, like Palpatine's plan, et cetera. Like I've always been kind of a little bit confused by it. So, Mm, um, but you get the battle of Coruscant and there was a reason that this happened. I mean, this is a, a cataclysmic event, separatist ships bombing Coruscant and attacking the cities. Um, and this brought about the Security Act Amendment. This is something that, again, happens off screen. There's so much stuff that I feel like could have been put into episode three to make it media, more media on politics. Yeah. There's some deleted scenes. For people who have not checked out the deleted scenes on Revenge of the Sith, there are some political deleted scenes that you should check out that are very much worth your time. Um, but again, the Security Act Amendment enhanced past laws that made the Supreme Commander uh, of the Armed Forces the Supreme Chancellor. So this is sort of now where he sort of inherits the commander in chief role that our president in the United States has. He is the high commander of the armed forces. He does make those calls and he can go directly down to the generals and and sort of guide people the way that you see fit. So when he is able to direct commander Cody to just kill the Jedi, that's only made possible by the chipping away of democracy throughout the movies because in the old system, it would have had to have been cleared by the Senate. My impression is that Order 66 was programmed into the clones from the very beginning, but perhaps the protocols had to develop over time, like the laws and policies had to change over time during the Clone Wars for it to be possible. Yeah, absolutely. So so for like the compliance, like the response mm-hmm. to Order 66, mm-hmm. it's, it's 100% true that that's built into them. But for that, there not to be any sort of legal or democratic, you know, you know, crisis in this mm-hmm. happening, it was a commander from the chief of the armed forces, which is the Supreme Chancellor, not the emperor at this time. So it did have to have some sort of legal pathway to happen for him to order the execution of the Jedi without any sort 
sort of due process or democratic uh, motion in, before the Senate. And that was brought about by the Security Act Amendment, which made him the commander of the armed forces. It's really fascinating how even, you know, and again, like he just beautifully, masterfully manipulated everything, like every, almost every single event in the war. And I think you see this in the Clone Wars as well. You know, you see him, uh, be the mastermind behind a certain battle or event and his own kidnapping. And he knows all of the players politically and militarily, and he moves the chess pieces so precisely that he'll get his way and he'll get his policy across. Like it's just, it's just brilliant and fascinating. And this is why I love Palpatine so much because he's this mastermind who is able to play all of his enemies and even his allies like dolts and simply get his way. I know this sounds horrifying, honestly, but I love these kinds of villains. I love people who are able to psychologically and politically know uh, like the people around them so incredibly well and play the political game on virtually every single level, like galactic galactic level to personally between him and Anakin and Padme. It's just so, so good. Swara, you are complicit in fascism. Hey, hey, I'm just, hey, I'm just saying. Like, (laughs) hey, you, you think the same way. Like, you don't, don't (laughs) deny that. You think that he's brilliant too. (laughs) So, mention one of your favorite parts of of Palpatine's uh, Mm. brilliant career is the dissolution of the Senate and the handing of power to the governors. So, Mm. fun fact: this actually happens um, in the beginning of the Revenge of the Sith. Um, sort of after the rescue sequences is the passing of the sector governance decree. Uh, the sector, sector oh, yeah, yeah, the right. sector governance decree is what actually creates um, the governors. And it is a body which Palpatine directly challenges the Senate with. He 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 sort of usurps their authority to represent their districts as they as they would be. They're parts of the galaxy with governors, cronies like. Tarkin, um, who he meets uh, early on in his political career, and he sort of, I think, recognizes a person who has the same sort of disdain for democracy as he does. Like, because there there are a lot mm. of people willing to go along with Palpatine. Like, not everybody is dragged along. Uh, oh or, yeah, or sort of duped into all of this. There are a lot of people who who are actively involved in trying to undermine the system as well. Masameda, Tarkin. Um, but he installs the governors. And you see in some of the deleted scenes of episode three, uh, the senators who finally realized that they were freaking powerless, they formed the petition of 2000, but it was like far too late for them to actually get any of the power back from the executive, which, you know, y'all, that's, that's the lesson. Like once, once you hand anything over, you don't get it back. And the Senate, the senators just realized it too late. Um, you know, Padme is right. This is how democracy dies with thunderous applause. But but mm-hmm. really, democracy in the Republic died a long time ago, and it just sort of died um, – what's the word? Without, without a care, like without a thought. It was sort of handed away in all these moments that sort of seemed like no-brainers to people because they wanted to feel safe. But it was just sort of given away with a, a stroke Callously. of a pen. Yeah, I'm trying to think like the right word, but just not even thinking about it. You know? Her- callously perfunctory bust um, out the thesaurus um but you know (laughs) it's it's the thunderous applause moment was really just sort of putting the final seal of approval on it but it had already happened many many years before 
Yeah, it was something that he had instigated decades in the making or like decades before. And he just kept at the game, like in virtually every single move he was making. He never let up for a second. Everything. So, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, I think it's just a great time to talk about lessons. You know, mm-hmm. we, there's there's so much more to Palpatine's career. Like there is obviously original trilogy stuff, but it, it's kind of light because the yeah. original trilogy focuses so much on the Luke Skywalker and the Rebellion story. We don't get much of Palpatine there. Well, well, um, well let's give a little eulogy. You know, like he, yeah. he yeah. Um, you know, had one masterful stroke of genius to trap those pesky rebels, given the perfect opportunity to attack a supposedly vulnerable Death Star 2. Unfortunately, he underestimated the immense strength of the Ewoks, who uh, unfortunately undermined his plan, and that along with Luke's, or Darth Vader's genuine love for his son. But uh, yeah, you know, Palpatine, you did well for 84 years, but or like 87 years, buddy. But, uh, you know, all good things must come to an end. And I was sad to see you go. Rest yep. in peace. Yep. He went out like a champ all the way down he the shaft. He an explosion, did. Like <laughs> explosion of sparkles. Uh, I, I, exactly. hope, I, I only hope that I can go out in an explosion of sparkles, too. Exactly. It's something to aspire to. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so looking back, though. There are lessons that the the maker of Star Wars wanted us to take away from his grand story about the rise and fall of an empire. So let's look to our own world. Let's look to the United States where we live. Suara, what are the lessons of Palpatine? Oof, man, this is heavy. Uh, well, first off, or excuse me. Sorry, I just had a burp right there. <laughs> The lessons of Palpatine. Hmm. Besides my own lessons, I garner from him on how to be more masterfully manipulative at all aspects of my life. I, I think that's really just a cautionary tale of making sure that you don't put all of your trust into one central figure and think that they're going to be your savior in democracy or in government. You need to make sure that you have term limits. Term limits are important. If you go look through world history, you'll see abuse of term limits by dictators who started out as democratically elected leaders, but whose rise in popularity went to the extreme. And they took advantage of that with a lack of term limits to become these lifelong dictators. Palpatine essentially is the same. I believe actually by Attack of the Clones, he had already served out two terms. Each was four years, but served an extra two years because... He was so popular and senators in the galaxy still want him in there. He took advantage of the letting up of term limits there. This is something we should always be cognizant of. You know, something yeah. that I, I really only just sort of become aware of in the past few years was that we don't actually have a long history of term limits in our own country. Like yeah. this is not something for us that was a thing until after FDR. Yeah. Uh, you know, when we sort of took our first brush with a president who ran over two terms, um, again, in, in a time of, of great crisis, sort of felt like he needed to run for a third term, that the country needed him for a third 
term. And we coasted for 150 something years on norms, just the general idea that it was not appropriate for someone to go more than two terms in the spirit of George Washington. Um, and and that's profound to me. Like we don't actually have a long history of that. It's sort of something new for even us, and it's sort of built into our political narrative that that we've always just been some sort of great and and well functioning democracy. Like one, we have not. We've not even been a country with term limits since the forties, and we have also not been a multicultural and inclusive democracy until sixty four. Yeah. Like you know, we are just now starting this democratic experiment, and it's and it's been a little tumultuous. To us, but I, I kind of want to yeah. kick it back to um, the idea of, of, of executive orders. So, like, we see a lot in the the prequels uh, talk about executive actions and frustration from people like Bail Organa and Padme about executive orders. Um, this is something that I think like George Lucas was lashing out about George W. Bush about, and you know we're we're pretty far away from the George W. Bush presidency now, and executive orders are like the name of the game these days. How do you feel about executive orders? Like, are you naturally opposed to them? Are you sort of like have you learned to accommodate them? What is your thinking about when a president rolls out executive orders? I think it really depends. There are obviously some executive orders by the Obama presidency I really like, like DACA or his clean air executive order that command the EPA to roll back a greenhouse gas emissions. Um, I think that I need to do more history on this, honestly. I think. But, but can, I, yeah. can I actually push back on that mm-hmm. a little bit? So, like, you say, like, executive orders that I really like. And I'm sympathetic to this. There are mm-hmm. executive orders that I, I like too because they appeal to my politics. But do you think that it is right to in, execute executive orders on things like immigration policy and mandating emissions straight from the White House, leveraging the bureaucracy and not? lawmaking, not legislating. Now, I know we have a Congress that is broken and and locked into inaction, but didn't we just talk about all these reasons why it's not okay to then just be like, well, screw it. We're just going to move on. (laughs) It depends on our system of the executive orders or within the lines of previous policies or previous rulings. The two that I mentioned, DACA uh, and uh, Clean Air, were – well, I'll say for Clean Air that it was a 2007 uh, decision by the Supreme Court, EPA versus Massachusetts, which Mm -hmm. uh, basically said – the Supreme Court said uh, like – EPA, you need to roll back greenhouse gas emissions. These should be considered as a pollutant. And in terms of DACA, it really has to do with the economic impact that uh, sending back so many undocumented immigrants would have for us as a country. So I, you know, it really depends on the circumstance and if there is like a genuine crisis that's happening. But at the same time, that's a slippery slope. And I think that when it comes to war powers, I'm definitely more uh, wary of executive orders. So I think that if we yeah. go into, into war, we need the approval of Congress. As, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, to the war, to the war issue, you know, it's, it's a great, you know, line. You know, the United States has not formally declared war since 1941. Um, we've just sort of coasted from executive war to executive war uh, since World War II. And it's it's kind of horrifying when you think about it. Well, we approved the Iraq war as well. But when you when you sort of actually look at you know the executive order question, um, you know, oh, I, yeah, I remember yeah. like what was it? Re- Representative Sheila Jackson of Texas, Democrat, during the Obama administration, she she sort of was excited when Obama first started his uh, 
um, his his administration, she said that her number one agenda was going to be to write and give the president a number of executive orders that he can sign. And you just sort of go like you scratch your head at that point, like it's the start of the Obama presidency, and you're like, you have the the majority in Congress. Why are you not writing bills? Why are you not writing bills that can become law for the president to then sign? And it's because we just want to take shortcuts. Like we really instinctively want to take shortcuts to the things that we want to accomplish in our lives and that we think are important. And the problem with that though, and and again, like I support DACA, I support the idea of DACA, but DACA needs to be a law um, because now it's in limbo. It's, it's, It's a hostage to the political environment. Um, When you have the bureaucracy and the president sort of able to just throw things around willy-nilly like they don't mean anything, laws mean something. And it it sort of pains me, like the DACA issue, because I agree with the principle, but like I I don't agree with the the, – the tool in which like this idea is being pushed, it needs to be law or we, we don't have like a country of laws. It's just a country of men and people who are in charge and then they just change the rules. I think that it is more complicated than that. I'm not saying that you're wrong here. I think that you're the prince. I think, yeah, for sure. Yeah. There should be an actual law in place. We do actually need Congress to do its job on this and so many other issues. The problem is, is that there, it seems like every day there's another crisis like that we need to deal with. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that Congress isn't doing its job. Prime case being uh, the DACA recension and rescinding and, uh, you know, I would argue, uh, you know, like there's several other crises, but it's 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 like it's it's it's, it's it, yeah it's such it's such a hard thing to tackle right now in the space of Syria, right? like, like yeah like Syria right, right. exactly <laughs> yeah, it was it was something like where everyone was like all right you know we need to do something and remember Obama challenged um, the Congress to help him with it like uh, Obama drew the red line on the use of chemical weapons mm-hmm. and then he was chastised for not taking action on it but if you will recall it's a little disingenuous because he actually made a challenge to Congress he was like I want to act on this but I want you to sign off on it and they didn't mm-hmm. and therefore then they pigpiled on him in the media and Congress for saying like the president didn't take action on Syria he's a coward he's mm-hmm. soft mm-hmm. and it he put it on their plate and said, I want to do yeah. something, but I want you to be involved. I, I commend the president for trying to engage the legislative branch on his red line in Syria. And today we're just so far past that. And it, it baffles me because you mentioned, you know, military engagement. Like we have uh, you know, kind of a democratic opposition party. You know, McCaskill's called him a buffoon. White House has said that, uh, or yeah, Sheldon Whitehouse has said that he does not believe in the basic institutions of our government. Um, these are the opposition doesn't trust the president, but yet they still are willing to defer military action to him. Like that's that should blow your mind that that they they think he's crazy and they think he's yeah. irrational, but they think that it's okay for him to be fully in charge of our military engagements. The problem is the mil- the politicization of military and foreign policy. The problem is is that this is becoming a political issue as well, where it wasn't before, and that's another yeah. lesson. For from Palpatine that we need to be wary of like this sort of factionalization, this intense politicization, which can lead to a Palpatine. 
So yeah. I want to turn we gotta check ourselves on that. We do. Yeah, and I want I want to turn real quick to a friend of the show, political scientist Seth Maskett out of the University of Denver. He's also a contributor to Vox.com. Um, Seth has been on this show a couple times to talk about the politics of Star Wars and also Congress. And I sent him a question asking him, how did it get to be this way? How did Congress get to be so broken that we really are drifting towards an imperial presidency in America today? He had this to say. You have several reasons congressional oversight of the executive branch has grown weaker over time. Uh, For one, and this is really a main weakness of the legislative branch, it's just harder to coordinate activities among 535 legislators across two chambers than it is within a hierarchy with just one president. Um, The president has just increasingly become the focal point of political activity. Campaigns are increasingly focused around that office, and it's hard for Congress to come up with a coordinated response to him. Uh, Related to this, members of Congress are generally pretty happy with the president taking on most of the more controversial decisions, such as whether to go to war or not, and to either praise or criticize him after the fact. Uh, The second main reason uh, has to do with partisan polarization. Uh, The only time you see anything like congressional oversight is when Congress is controlled by a different party than the White House and can subpoena people in the executive branch. The idea that the president's party in Congress would just let the White House do whatever it wants with virtually no oversight was certainly not part of the founders' vision, but it's a result of declining congressional interest in oversight and partisan polarization. Professor Massey is absolutely right. You know, just like we were just saying, it has a lot to do with that politicization and that factionalization that basically impedes this something like 535 member body from doing their job. And instead you have, just like Seth said, the president being the focal point, the one who for whom it is so much easier to make all of these decisions quickly for the nation as it needs. And like this isn't what the founders envisioned, just like he just said. They did not think that party would be such a strong motivating force. They thought, oh, you've got this body, the Congress, the legislature, which will be a strong check on the executive. But no, now it's really about consolidating power for one party or another. And frankly, that's really sad. Yeah. And, you know, something that I I mentioned earlier, again, like there's just so much political incentive for lawmakers to hand over the burden so that they can just sort of coast uh, in their job and not have to make tough decisions, like things like being engaged abroad in Syria uh, or in Iraq or whatever. People don't want to take those classy votes. I mean, just think about like how Hillary Clinton has been dogged by you know her mm. her having her having to make a decision on the Iraq war. Like it's it's kind of become like such a, a political weapon against her, but yeah. like God God forbid she had to make a decision. Mm. Um, I, I prefer that over like the weird limbo that we're in every day now with Congress where just they're not going to commit to anything um, and they're not going to actually stand by a decision that they have to make. Um, but, you know, again, my, my bone to pick is sort of with the forming of like a governorship, like with Palpatine and Tarkin in the bureaucracy. I, I think that's sort of one thing that I'm, 
very wary of personally in my politics mm-hmm. is this fourth branch of government that has sort of grown out of Congress and the White House, um, which is the administrative state. You know, all of your agencies, which employ hundreds upon hundreds of employees, really hundreds is lowballing, it's thousands of employees um, who aren't accountable to voters, but they enact laws, right? Like they they write laws and then make them actually enforceable through the executive branch. And I think that that's kind of crazy. <laughs> um, and it's it's just something that I've, I've noted has been a decline in sort of our democratic score over the past couple of decades. It's uh, my big bone to pick. Well, the thing about, you have to remember about these bureaucrats is that they're nonpartisan. They're here to ensure that our systems and our services are running smoothly. And you call Scott Pruitt nonpartisan? Like, no, let's, no, no, let's not, not Scott Pruitt. I'm, talk, I'm, ta- I'm talking. Oh, you are you talking about political appointees or bureaucrats? Well, political, politi- well, bureau- well okay. So political appointees and bureaucrats can be the same thing. I know, you can run. It, you can run the EPA. Yeah. You're a bureaucrat, but you're also a political appointee. Like they're they're less legacy people at yeah. the EPA who are there, right? Yeah, who yeah, are there who and they've been there a long about. time. But your Scott Pruitts can drive them out right. and they can also change the nature of the agency and those are political appointees. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of, I, I think, it's, it's, I don't know, it's not, there's not much of a distinguishment there between the bureaucrats and the people who come from the political world. Well, there is, though. There are career bureaucrats who have been there for years who remain nonpartisan, who know that they have a job to do in the long term. But you're right. You obviously have these political appointees with each new administration. And it really is ultimately up to the executive on how to direct these career bureaucrats. So I don't know. I've never really seen it as a fourth branch of government. I've seen them as uh, long-term serving people who have been there for a long time and are genuinely invested in the success of our nation. And, and for a lot of them, I genuinely commend them. And I think that they are, there is something to be really valued there. And I feel like often we just undervalue them. <laughs> I'm like someone who's I, sympathetic. I, I think- yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, just, I think you're being way too generous just kind of like thinking about what agencies you might really like because agencies pop up out of political motivations of any sort of uh, White House administration to the next. Like every White House, you know, just sort of comes up with their pet project thing that they care about. And then they create an agency. Like I'm thinking the Department mm-hmm. of Homeland Security. Right, right. The Department of Homeland Security is an abomination. And I don't care if they think they're public servants keeping people safe. It's not been good for the country. And over the course of a couple of years, it's sort of just lulled us into this complacence over the idea that we can just be surveilled and shaken down by uh, agents of the TSA and Homeland Security at any time because it's our civic duty to participate in fighting terrorism. Um, and even, you know, the EPA, like these are people with they, they have political opinions. And I think we sort of think about them as nonpartisan, but they are hostage to political ideas. And if you get someone like Scott Pruitt who comes in, he's just going to sort of reform the agency in his image and then make it a, a weapon against the previous agenda. So it's just it's pretty easy to reform based on who's in charge. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm just like thinking of these workers who are genuinely dedicated. I've known a lot of career uh, bureaucrats. Sure, me too. I've known a lot of career bureaucrats and diplomats throughout my life and i genuinely commend them for the for like you know and often it's a very thankless job i just have to say and just remember that listeners <laughs> like remember that like there are people behind these agencies who are really genuinely trying to make your life better
<laughs> no, there are. There literally are. I'm not I'm not laughing at the notion. I mean, like, I know that is true, but it's sort of like, again, like just sort of like picking on the margin instead of the big idea, which is that, you know, this was not meant to be part of the system. Mm-hmm. This mm-hmm. sort of idea was not meant to be part mm-hmm. of the system. All of these agencies that we have that write laws and then enact them without any sort of congressional oversight. It's it's just sort of mind-boggling debate. Well, again, that oversight has a lot to do with politics, and that's an issue we need to work on. Well, as a Republican strategist I used to know once said, uh, the Congress is rapidly becoming the comments section of U.S. politics. So there's not much there. And I think Palpatine really, like, as a Star Wars analogy, like he sort of sums it all up and it's it sort of spells out what we need to be wary of. I mean, we're talking about the best politician that's ever lived in this or any fictional universe, so obviously it's great. This episode of Beltway Banthas was brought to you by our friends on Patreon. Yes, that is you, the listeners of this show. You make this possible for Suara and I, and we thank you so much. Like this is this show is a huge task that we have taken on to actually try to keep going for two years. And we are coming up on a, a two-year birthday here pretty soon. And you guys on Patreon make it possible for us. Um, there are perks of being a patron of the show. You can get bonus content, more conversations between Suar and myself, more Star Wars, more politics. You get advanced news for the show. We do video chat hangouts. You can even send in your own Bantha fodders and much more. And you can get involved for as little as $1 to become a patron yourself. So we do want to thank all of our patrons, uh, our top patrons right now for giving to the show and helping to keep us afloat. Isaiah Leslie, Cheston Lee, Andy Siener, Connie Shee, Brad Tracy, Justin Day, Jessica Shitara, Sarah Smith, Jared Cantor, Tish Wells, Sean Mahan, Nick DeColandria, Sarah Strain, and BJ Smith. Thank you so much for supporting Beltway Banthas. Y'all are great. Yeah, thank you guys so, so, so much. You have no idea how much it means to us. And if you're interested as well in uh, joining the Patreon family, check out our page, um, patreon.com slash beltwaybanthas, and you can check out all of the perks there. And hopefully you may consider becoming one of our monthly patrons. Awesome. So I think that brings us to Bantha Fodder, the legendary segment of Beltway Banthas, where we just sort of spiel on something that's been on our mind, Star Wars politics or otherwise. It's an opportunity to vent uninterrupted about something that's just sort of got your goat this week. Suara, what has been on your mind? Oh, boy. So for several months now, now, First off, I just want to say you may see me on Twitter uh, as part of a movement called hashtag SWRepMatters or Star Wars Representation Matters. We're a group of people that advocates for diversity and representation in the galaxy far, far away, both in front of and behind the camera. So we were all uh, given word about a convention happening in Baltimore that was supposed to be this weekend called Universal FanCon. For several months, or almost like six months, or like uh, we were hearing news about how so many vendors and websites and journalists and basically geeks of color were coming together 
to put on this event, which would be inclusive, which would celebrate diversity, which would be accessible to uh, people who are disabled, which would be a welcoming space for people in the LGBTQIA community. And it was poised to be this really amazing, fantastic event. Me and my friends in the SW Rep Matters community were going to present a panel there uh, about like uh, our hashtag and why we think representation matters in the galaxy far, far away. We had bought our tickets. Uh, some of us had bought our tickets. Uh, we got our panel approved and got free tickets as a result of that. Everything was shaping up really nicely and really great for that. So last week, out of nowhere, they canceled the convention. Literally last Friday, we just saw on Twitter the complete dissolution of this event because the organizers apparently for months were so disorganized and basically had no idea what they were doing. They inconvenienced hundreds of people who were going to attend this convention. People had already bought non-refundable tickets to Baltimore or to DC to attend this convention and they had nothing to go to. They uh, refunded tickets. I got my refund. So that's great. But Still, this is unheard of. You do not cancel a convention where hundreds of people are attending one week before. The complete lack of professionalism and what many people, as you'll see on Twitter right now, are saying might actually be a scam that they may... Like this event, I have to backtrack and say, was started by a Kickstarter and the organizers got something like $150,000 and they may have already split it like something like five ways between all of them, the organizers of the convention. And it's maddening. It's maddening that they first off would plan the event in the first place if they were not prepared to do it or worst case that it actually was this scam that they did actually try to draw in all this Kickstarter money and in the result inconvenience hundreds of people who had taken vacation days, who had already spent so much money for this one weekend, for an event that they all genuinely believed in and that was going to be amazing and groundbreaking. I'm so sad. I'm so shocked. This was going to be an amazing event. My friends are still coming, by the way. They're still coming here to DC and we've had to improvise. Now we're having a friend con together and we're making the best out of like this frankly really bad situation. We're actually still going to do our panel about SW Rep Matters. We're actually going to be live streaming it online on Twitter this Sunday at 1 o'clock Eastern time. So hopefully you'll tune into that. We still care a lot about this issue. We still care about diversity in the geek space, and we'll still continue to work forward to make it uh, more inclusive and more of reality in front of and behind the screen. But I just have to tell you, listeners, I was so sad and so shocked this week. But my friends and I are moving forward, as we should, because this dream of diversity and inclusion matters even if you get duped by some really bad people. That's my fodder for this week.
Stephen, what's on your mind? Hopefully lighter than what I was just talking about. (laughs) What a mess. Well, uh, I usually always do a bad job at keeping it light, but sort of light. So um, I really enjoyed the piece in Bloomberg by Stephen Carter, a response to um, the infiltration uh, of New York City regarding Chick-fil-A. So it was titled The Ugly Coded Critique of Chick-fil-A's Christianity, The Fast Food Chain's Infiltration of New York City. You know, air quotes around that ignores the truth about religion in America and an ugly, narrow-mindedness. So I thought this was a really good response to that piece that showed up in The New Yorker about how weird and off-putting it was that Chick-fil-A was opening up and rapidly expanding in New York City you know, because it is the best chicken restaurant out there. Um, and, and basically that it sort of encapsulates um, sort of this Southern culture and is, is branded uh, in this effort to glorify. God. And the responses to all this were, of course, from the usual suspects, I think a little bit overblown. They're like, oh my gosh, the liberal New Yorker, they hate Christians, but blah, 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 blah. And then there was just all this stuff about like boycotting the New Yorker from people who obviously don't subscribe to the New Yorker, like as if they're going to boycott it in the first place. It's it's just sort of all very silly and it's all very juvenile and it's all very reactionary. But the Bloomberg piece I thought was really cool. So it actually just sort of looked at how folks like the people at the New Yorker often don't think about who they are talking about and writing about when they think about the ugliness of Chick-fil-A, which of course they have in mind um, Chick-fil-A's involvement um, with campaigns regarding same-sex marriage. That's what they're sort of thinking of. And they characterize it in this Southern white way because of the leadership of Chick-fil-A and the people who run the company. Um, And the piece sort of just goes back and looks at 2015 Pew Research data uh, to just understand and put a picture to what Chick-fil-A's audience actually looks like and what Christians look like and basically made an effort to just sort of add color to the perception of Christians um, to New York liberals and just sort of reminding them through data um, that some 83% of all black Americans are absolutely certain that God exists uh, and that there are more black Americans under the age of 40 today that are likely to be Christians than there are white Americans, that among the millennial cohort, Asians and Latinos are more likely to be Christian than white Americans, Uh, and that still today, black Americans have more intense views on traditional marriage than white Americans. Like These are just things that have not changed. They've always been present, but yet still sort of like the caricature of the Southern white Christian and Chick-fil-A is sort of what dominates the conversation around that company. And so I thought this was a constructive way to respond. It was just sort of like, hey, man, if you're going to write this sort of like ugly thing about Chick-fil-A and Christianity, like just remember that you're probably talking to a lot of your readers and people in New York being the most multicultural city in the world. So bravo to Bloomberg for sort of keeping it, uh, uh, you know, esteemed and uh, and keeping it fair and level. So that's my Bantha Fodder for the week. Uh, this has been a jam-packed episode, Suara, and a good one. Yeah, very good one. Palpatine brings out the best in us, I think. I think so. I think so. And you can find more about the best of us on Twitter because that's where the really good stuff is. I promise. You can follow Beltway Banthas on Twitter at Beltway Banthas. You can find me on Twitter at Steven underscore Kent 89. Suara, where can they find you? 
You can find me on Twitter at SwaraSaleh1. That's S-W-A-R-A-S-A-L-I-H-1. You can follow Beltway Banthas at Beltway Banthas. And you can also find some of my blogs on Porgology and the But Why Though the Podcast blog. And you should do that. Get in touch with us on the Beltway Bantha's uh, Twitter channel and also on Facebook. We're going to be having some announcements here in the next couple of weeks about the future of the show that I think you're really going to want to hear. This is going to be really cool uh, changes um, and big changes, radical changes to the way that this show sort of looks and works. And you're going to want to be first to hear about those and be prepared for them when sort of those uh, those changes show up in your feed. Uh, we've also got some new show artwork coming out for the May 4th uh, holiday coming up. Uh, Very excited about that. So catch up with us on social media and you'll be the first to hear about all those. And you can also find us on RetroZap.com. That's the home of the RetroZap podcast family, which houses Beltway Banthas. This has been episode 55 of Beltway Banthas. He is the Senate. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with more. Until then, may the force be with you. Power. Unlimited power. power. <laughs>